If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hello and welcome to the latest Verso podcast in association with the London Review Bookshop. My name is Gareth Evans and it's a great pleasure to be hosting this conversational exploration of the storytelling and radio work of the great Walter Benjamin. Of course, a writer familiar to all of us, particularly in the academic and uh, creative non-fiction worlds, but much less familiar to us as a storyteller and a writer of fiction across many, many different forms. One imagines also that he would have been fascinated and energised by the idea and possibility of the podcast itself. He was a key early radio broadcaster, as we'll hear later. And I'm delighted to be welcoming three very special guests to talk about this work and to share their insights with us. Esther Leslie is the translator, along with her colleagues, of this new collection, The Storyteller, Tales Out of Loneliness, published right now by Verso Books. She's Professor of Politics and Aesthetics at Birkbeck College and one of the key international experts on Benjamin's life and work. She's joined by Marina Warner, the winner of the Holberg Prize, one of our key mythographers and explorers of what the story means historically and in the present tense and across cultures. And we're joined by Michael Rosen, the acclaimed poet, children's writer, educational campaigner and, of course, a famous broadcaster himself, to look in detail at what the radio works can tell us about the possibilities of the medium. But first we'll start with Esther Leslie. Esther, you've put this wonderful collection, The Storyteller, Tales Out of Loneliness, together with Sam Dolbear and Sebastian Truskolaski. And it's the first major collection of his stories in English and even in German, uh, uh, it, it appears, because the, the pieces gathered here are, are scattered across the collected works and haven't been quite formally identified in the way that this collection does uh, gather them. And the subtitle of the collection is Tales Out of Loneliness. Could you tell us where that came from and whether we should take it as a, as a key way into this uh, extraordinary volume? This title comes from one of the titles for Benjamin's own very short stories. And in many ways, we felt it typified the volume in the sense that often these these stories are about lost people or lost collections of people as much as lost traditions. There's a certain kind of loneliness and and searching for others, searching for connection that occurs in in many of the stories. And it also speaks to an idea which is very central to Benjamin, which is the the idea of the form, literary form, and the extent to which the different genres of of epic, of novel, of of story that comes from oral tradition, the extent to which those evoke lonely or amassed individuals, lonely or amassed producers of materials. So I think the use of that title was to to really evoke some of these questions that are working through Benjamin's stories in in more or less obvious ways. There's another sense of of loneliness at work perhaps in the collection isn't there because of this this severance um of the connection to to uh, an oral way of telling to a sense of story as a shared collective spoken out loud form of telling um that uh, in your excellent introduction uh, you identify through Benjamin's own reading of the impact of the First World War. Yes, in two pieces. One is called Experience and Poverty from 1933 and then repeated again in his famous essay from 1936, The Storyteller. Benjamin characterises um, an incredible break in 
experience or, or the ways in which we experience experience in a sense and talks about this this sort of severance of the the red thread of experience that there was a time prior to industrialization war um and and all that we might characterize as the modern epoch of capitalism there was a time in which experience uh, perhaps was more um organic in some ways or coherent or continuous and most importantly it formed part of tradition and could be handed on and the way in which it could be handed on was through stories often oral stories stories told by mouth stories told in the workshop by the master journeyman who comes to a, a town or a village to to produce crafts sitting together with those who were there he tells stories of his travels or from the resident craftsperson craftsman who has uh, undertaken journeys in his youth and as they work as they make their pots as they weave he tells stories and in telling stories he hands on wisdom or he hands on morals now I think there are two things going on with Benjamin, what he says in The Storyteller and Experience and Poverty is that war crashes into that. After the experience of war, there's no way back to that shore of of living where there, there's a, a continuity of, of experience and a continuity of transmitting and communicating experience. That's all broken. Um, and what's also broken what's also happened within literature is that a new form of telling has emerged and this form is the novel and the novel he understands to be the product of a solitary writer um, who alienates this this work this creative fiction into a book that's held in the hand of a solitary reader and and what the novel does and in some ways Benjamin is very dismissive in a sense of the novel although it's appropriate to the age uh, he cites Georg Lukacs's idea from theory of the novel the age of transcendental homelessness so it's a, a pr appropriate form but what it it does is to uh, give a kind of meaning of life, but it's a life contained within the lives of the figures within the novel. And this is completely different to these oral forms of telling, to fairy tales and fables um, and uh, uh, other other forms which emerge from the life of the storyteller and sort of sink into the life of those listening, stories which are told and retold and which often have a moral to them. So the novel is about the meaning of life in some grand but abstracted way, whereas the story is, is, is about a moral or something useful or something usable. And in many ways he feels, with the break-in experience, with the emergence of information and the newspaper, access to that type of wisdom, that type of tradition and passing on is compromised or is, is difficult to access or has become historically remaindered in some sense. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, there's an, uh, an extraordinary tension then at work in, in the process of communication, whether from story in the older sense you've described or to the novel of, of the, the relationship between the individual and the collective, the individual within a larger society. Benjamin, of course, a pan-European in all sorts of ways, very socially engaged, part of a creative community, but also, of course, constantly on the move himself, isolated, I guess, the solitary writer that you've partly described. But in this extraordinary uh, life of restless travel across the continent, he found time, of course, to write and, and was compelled by financial need to write across all sorts of forms. And we see that explicitly here, even within the parameter of the story. Uh, many, many different kinds and types of story, uh, novellas, fables, histories, aphorisms, parables, riddles, and so on. And is there in your study of the work, is there a pattern as to how an idea would find a particular form that you can identify? I think he was always experimenting and and you you see the ways in which uh, uh, a, a few sentences from a creative work might appear in a critical work or in another context or, or vice versa. And in some ways, I think he's quite 
fluid about the genres. There, there are specific genres engaged here when he's writing for children, presumably for his own son, Stefan, and he's adopting that form of uh, the, the kind of Rudyard Kipling, how did the elephant get his trunk kind of form. But there seem to be two distinct periods, I think, of fiction that we've gathered here, and some of it is the early early from around prior to the First World War and seeping over into that period when he's really working through um, issues around sexuality, being a student, uh, a certain kind of urban alienation, which perhaps lends itself more to um, a, a kind of short story format. Um, and then um, there's the later work, which is coming from the late 20s and early 30s, where he seems to diversify the types of address that, that he engages. So there, there is much more of the, the, the parable, the um, um, certain kinds of short story, the riddle form, um, poetry and so on. But I, I think predominantly, I mean, people talk about the way in which he was always carrying these notebooks around with him, always scribbling things down. So I think he just, the, the, the stories kind of fi find their own form as he, as he works with them. We should look now at the, at the way that you've uh, broken the book up into different sections. And you start with uh, a focus on dreams, with tales of fantasy, but also sometimes with Benjamin's own dreams. And that's obviously a kind of foundational location for the kind of stories that we're looking at today. Uh, how did he record his own dreams? And was he a, was he a, a keen advocate of, of the relationship between dream narratives, if you like, and, and narratives in the waking world? He was fascinated by a tradition, I think, of people writing down dreams. And some of these seem to emerge from a project that somebody else was undertaking in the 1920s of harvesting dreams from writers and other figures. And he didn't collect his own dreams systematically, unlike some writers. But I think he certainly saw them as a a resource for uh, for striking imagery. Uh, also, I mean, he, he himself writes this lovely little piece in 1925 about dream kitsch, where he talks about the ways in which dreams have determined wars and wars have determined dreams. And there's something of historical and political import as well as psychological import in the dreams. And of course, I, uh, as he engages more and more with surrealism, about which he's very enthusiastic. I think he he is more and more interested in recording his own dream work and uh, dream life. Um, but and he, in his own essay on surrealism, he he quotes that famous little um, uh, anecdote about you know, the surrealist who's in bed and on the door is a sign, you know, a poet at work. So clearly there's a relationship to that kind of scoping through the unconscious in order to find material that, that would stimulate more creative endeavours. Absolutely. But clearly he didn't spend all his time in bed, far from it. And he, uh, he was out and about in the city and many cities, of course, across Europe, as you uh, suggested earlier. And the next section looks at, uh, at the kind of the, the life of the city, often the erotic life of the city or the kind of promise of the erotic that the city offers. Um, and also the idea of stories as kind of um, engines and vessels of, of transit. And how does that, uh, if you like, uh, reflect on his obviously much wider body of writing in, in a non-fictional sense, in a, in a journalistic and academic sense, around the idea of the flaneur in the city? Yes, he his the love at last sight experience, which he talks about in relation to Baudelaire and walking on the city streets and so glimpsing a, a, a woman momentarily as she passes by, and that raising all these questions about um, desire, potential, other lives. What if you would follow? Uh, or, there's a story in the collection um, which is about. Um, a man who goes along to one of those imperial panoramas and it's a dream story and and flashing up before the, the man are all these 
potential things he could have done, these doors he could have walked through, uh, the seats he could have taken, the hotel room he could have had, wanted to have, and and the, the lovers he he might have had. So the, this sort of sense of, I think within Benjamin, this sense of, of what is fate, what paths do we choose for ourselves, what paths are blocked for us in life. And this is something that a city, an urban environment, generates constantly this this awareness of other lives and one's own possible other lives and this is very intimate or deep in Benjamin's writings and through the arcades project and all the Baudelaire work and I find it interesting that in the storyteller essay he he speaks about three locations from which the story emerges and and that is the rural uh, the maritime and the urban. So there's definitely a sense in which um, the city tells stories in the way we will also come to understand it through film in the 40s and sort of that detective film noir tradition. There was a point at which he was so desperate for somewhere to live that he was thinking about going to a cave um, in the Mediterranean. Is that right? And, and, And obviously we can attach all sorts of symbolic orders to that decision, whether it was um, realised or not. But what, what was this sense of, of, of the wider landscape um, for, ben, for Benjamin? Was it a place of safety? Of course, we think about the terrible final days when he was uh, fleeing across the Pyrenees. But before that ultimate moment, was, was, was the sense of the wider landscape a, a sort of active one for him? Was it a useful one creatively? I think it was useful creatively to, to get away, to see new sites, to follow... That classic German romantic drive, you know, we are stuck in the gloomy dark north. We must, we must go south and uh, and discover a new light. Um, although e- equally, he's he's drawn to the upper nor- northern regions on this this great uh, boat trip he takes, which is in the volume un- under the title Nordic Sea. Um, so I I think that there's a sense of literally opening up one's horizons and in a way going back into tradition and he's he has a very particular reading of what tradition means and german tradition german jewish tradition literary tradition and so on but it it's it's a, a pull back in some ways into a past and into mythic pa- pasts and parts of antiquity i think that's powerfully there but i think probably the the over riding reason for much of his travels in Ibiza, um, where he writes quite a few of these stories, and Capri and elsewhere, is financial, just trying to find a place where he can live on the minimum amount of money, because money is a real crisis for him in, in, in this period from the late 20s onwards. He doesn't have enough of it. But he never lost his sense of play, which is is not uh, in any way uh, the only uh, association that comes from that to do with with a, a triviality, a sort of a sense of, of of filling time. He he saw play as a fundamental part of human life, didn't he? And also, of course, celebrated the play of children as a real space of possibility, which. Uh, takes up the third section of the volume. Uh, that related, of course, to pedagogy as well. We'll talk much more about this, I think, with Michael a little later, of course, in relation to the radio programmes. But could you just give us a, a little bit more about how he, how he conceived the idea of play, both creatively for himself as a writer, but also socially? What, what kind of role it served for him? We decided to include some reviews in each section to focus and put a different angle on on these themes of dream and travel and play. And there's a lovely review included here um, uh, of a a book for children, a a primer for teaching um, the alphabet and and reading and so on by Tom Seidman Freud. And I think in, in that review, it's all expressed very cogently, this sense of um, uh, what a child gains from play is learning. It's about um, finding entries into the world on their own terms. It's about developing autonomy and independence through curiosity and through disarranging things as much as arranging them and declassification as much as classification. And I think 
Benjamin never loses sight of play as something fundamentally creative, but but it's often a creativity with very small means. So the the child who, rather than play with the the great, wonderfully mimetic, well-organised toy, would rather play with wood shavings or with a a rather demotic, um, uh, semi-horse-like looking thing that they can project imagination into all the better. So I think um, play, it seems obvious in a sense, is is about imagination and curiosity and a form of self-development and learning. And Benjamin is constantly learning from children. There's another half review, half creative work that we uh, include within here, which is a review of Frankfurt children's rhymes from the playground that have been collected and Benjamin's very enthusiastic about this work and the way in which children make up rhymes, that they learn them from their parents, but they vary them and they vary. There are different versions across the city or across the country and they um, uh, play with language and, 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 and turn all of this into a sort of free space of, of exploration. So play is very much about a form of pedagogy. We did also look at play in another more negative light within the book because the German word for play is spiel or spielen and it can also mean gambling and we did also locate the sort of tragic temporality and um, thwarted desire of of the gambler as as maybe the the negative face of play or or what happens to to play in the in the adult realm if they if they follow this path of of wanting um, to have it all and right now and and sort of losing uh, uh, another sense of how one might rebuild and re-inhabit one's world. You've uh, mentioned earlier this, this very strong lineage, this very strong dialogue that Benjamin had with earlier forms of storytelling, the oral tradition, of course, particularly. But he also has, of course, a crucial relationship, a sort of creative dialogue with Franz Kafka. And um, there's a key essay, of course, about Kafka, which contains a version of one of the stories, The Wish. And I wonder if you could just give us a sense of this of this uh, interaction between the two writers, crucial, of course, around the realm of the fable in, in terms of the volume we're looking at today, but, but also their sense, I guess, um, of relationship to this older lineage. Benjamin, like many authors and people, was fascinated by Kafka and what Kafka managed to do, especially to the parable form. And I think there's a certain amount of interest in Kafka from Benjamin's part as someone whose father um, is a sort of Jewish secularist um, who, in a sense, it embodies tradition embodies a set of teachings in the past but can't transmit them cannot communicate them and it all feeds into this this sense of a certain kind of breakage and a, and a certain if only personal redundancy of, of a certain set of teachings and I think Benjamin very much sees Kafka wrestling with this formally so the parable which should pass on the wisdom's uh, of the religious teachings becomes in Kafka a an enigma, a, a, a curiosity that has many layers of interpretation or even thwarts interpretation, and yet it seems to have um, the the form of the parable. So Benjamin talks about it being uh, of having renounced truth, but having held on to transmissibility or, or the passing on of tradition in some ways. And um, and I think Benjamin plays with this himself in four tales that we include in the book. One of which is this story of of the of the wish, which is then later picked up again by Benjamin and included in his great essay on Kafka. And it's an enigmatic story, a, a parable that in some ways seems to be teaching us a very important lesson, but we can't actually access that lesson um 
or we can make a gesture towards accessing it, but it, it remains remote, but it's in that remoteness that its import is contained. Thank you very much indeed, Esther. Now, before we welcome Marina, we're delighted that Flossie Draper is with us. Flossie is Walter Benjamin's great-granddaughter, and she will now be reading for us Benjamin's The Wish. In a Hasidic village, on the evening of the Sabbath's end, the Jews were sitting at a humble inn. They were all locals, except for one whom nobody knew, a very poor man, dressed in rags, who cowered in the background in the shadow of the stove. The conversations had gone back and forth. Then one of them brought up the question of what each of them would wish if he were given one wish. One wanted money, another a son-in-law, and the third a new carpenter's bench, and so they went around. Once everyone had had their say, there remained only the beggar in the corner by the stove. Reluctantly and hesitantly, he gave in to the question. I wish I would be an all-powerful king who ruled over a vast land, and at night I would lie asleep in my castle, and the enemy would break in past the border, and before dawn horsemen would reach my castle, meet with no resistance, and, woken in alarm from my sleep, I would not even have time to dress myself, and, wearing only a shirt, I would escape past mountains and valleys and past forests and hills, without respite, day and night, until I arrived safely here at this bench in your corner. That is what I would wish for. The rest of them looked at each other uncomprehendingly. And what would come from all that? asked one. A shirt was the answer. Marina, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, you're renowned for your investigation of stories and storytelling globally, uh, looking across traditions, finding the connections between them, the differences, the, uh, the unique takes on this ancient form of communication. So this volume, I imagine for you, also being a great admirer of Benjamin in his larger body of work, must be a real joy for you to encounter. Yes, what he's interested in is the limits of meaning. And, the lim and, 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 and what is mysterious. There are a number of little fragments and fictions in this collection in which doors are opened into strange places. And sometimes there is no... And the stories themselves are doors that open into mm. places where you're not quite sure where you are. And you're left with a kind of a shiver, a sort of nice frisson-like sense of having accessed some kind of perhaps unofficial knowledge. But you can't really quantify it. You can't really put it in a sentence. Yes, yeah, so there's. It's very enigmatic, and uh, many of the stories are are quite perplexing. And I think that's also why we chose to include a couple of fragmented stories, stories that were broken off. And it, in in some ways, one might say, well, why, why, why bother? But but it's it's not necessarily about the completeness or the tying up of all the the bows within it I mean there seems to be a strategy within Benjamin's story writing of bringing in various voices and people reporting on other people and it's like a, a tumbling through layers of of telling which um I, in, increases this sort of sense in which it's it's mysterious or curious. One of the odd things when we were translating, sending it backwards and forwards to the copy editor, was getting in a real muddle about quotation marks and quotation marks within quotation marks and who's speaking at any point. And um, and, and and I don't think that's bad writing or his loss of mastery it's a strategy about these many doors as you say door after door that that opens and we we come out the other side and we're not sure quite where we've arrived always and and it is what you were saying earlier with with gareth it's the collective it's the it's the voices across time it's the echo chamber it's really interesting about the inverted commas because one of the solutions in often in transmission of fairy tales is simply not to have them at all there are very very many fairy tales written down in the past where there are there is no there is no because you can't it's 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 so embedded within one narrator and another narrator that you have to eliminate them the, um, but the other aspect, I think, that um, connects to this idea of mystery is that underneath 
as you implied and people have talked about regarding Kafka, is that underneath this idea of the transmission of stories lies a wisdom tradition. And the wisdom tradition is mystical and sometimes even supernatural. And of course, that is a very interesting um, problem of reconciliation in terms Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. of his general politics and also the politics of people who admire him. So I don't know if you want... I, I find that, you know, the. I mean, the, there's one story in which the... Is it, is it called Sketches in the Mobile Dust? Where there is a name inscribed and it go, comes and goes, which is really, really almost Kabbalistic. The idea of the power of the name that will, that will emerge and inaugurate reality or inaugurate experience, at least, remembered experience. And that, that that has a strong relationship to kind of, you know work as I said to the Kabbalah, but also to other other you know possibly more sort of Christian mysticism as well. The word, the word. and um and so how do you think that he do you, how do you think he kind of reconciled that in his own mind, or is fiction the place where he does that, where he doesn't do the no he does the uncanny in his in his mm, writing. I think it get, it, it raises the same contradictions that that all all of his writing raises in the sense that one has these great tangibilities of place it's something he says about Kafka or or other or writers like Hebel he talks about it in the storyteller essay that there's a great sort of accuracy in in a way of, of place and landscape and activities and yet there's also this this enigmatic mysterious um Layer, there's 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 a lot of debate about whether we're we're driven by fate, whether things are contained within the the stars, our actions are sort of predetermined. So it sort of moves between this this strongly materialist sense and then these other forces, powerful and cosmic forces that come to play. And I think this this occurs as much in the fiction and in some ways is maybe brought more to the fore and are articulated as part of the discussion than it is perhaps in, in some of his critical writings. But I I mean I that's one reason why I find him interesting, I think, is that he can extend materialism or extend Marxism into these very peculiar areas, but that perhaps in some sense, though, Marxism needs or or needs at least to be confronted with in order to become itself full. Well, his interest in what people did, their actual work, is one of the is one of the connective ways, isn't it? It's a sort of anthropology of labour, anthropology of toil, and that takes you into areas. Um, where anthropologists have observed. I mean, I was one of the very first things that I read of Benjamin that really struck me as just wonderfully true was when he said a baby's rattle is not just a rattle to make, but it's a rattle to keep off demons, and we should recognize that. Hmm. And it seemed to me that there he was touching on how these, when when you were fulling cloth or sorting beans and you tell stories about, ogres or enchanters or you actually are creating a kind of layer of protectiveness around you against the possible dangers the possible harms and i think we heard that too in the flood and the ku klux klan radio broadcasts you know this this awareness of the of the dangers that engulf ordinary people Mm. and how art and culture Mm. are ways of you know methods of 
holding that, in, in imposing some kind of structure on it, not even order, but just structure that will make it bearable. Not quite bearable, but almost bearable. Yes, and and yes, and somehow make it make sense to us, or, or hold it at, at bay in some ways by acknowledging it and um, yeah, formalizing it in some way. And you know, there's a lot of very conscious debate within Benjamin around questions of the role of myth in that. And then I think it's very important that. Um, you know, he sees contemporary capitalism as itself also entirely mythic and phantasmagoric too. So it's not just about the past, but there's a depth of time within the present. Thank you both very much indeed. Clearly this is material that we could uh, explore at much greater length. But I'm just thinking now about translation because the context in which Benjamin was writing, of course, we uh, are very familiar with a very difficult uh, time in Germany, France, of course, and, and with the war over the horizon. And I'm thinking about the, the move of these stories into, into English, where inevitably, of course, as with all translation, certain points of reference are, are, are left or, or become more obscure. And Marina, what are the implications of that for these kind of stories, do you think? Well, I think these are very good translations. I was, I was very, very captivated. I thought the stories in the um, translations of Sebastian Truskolowski are limpid. I mean, of course, I haven't read them in the original, but I, I found them really readable. And your translations of the ingenious wordplay and the riddles and the children's games and things I imagine are very tricky in the original. But then you've worked on the archive too, so you're familiar in this territory, aren't you? And um, But I think he, he has, you know, the, the largeness of the thought and the, the, the eloquence of these word pictures he makes make him translatable. I mean, I have often argued that fable, parable, etc. are portable forms. The form is translatable. So actually the vehicle of the language matters less than it does in a novel because we understand each other proverbially or fabulistically in ways that fiction needs the whole texture. I mean, I know that sounds as if the language doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. Obviously, it matters in Kafka. The language matters in Benjamin, but it does mean that. But they're contained within something that is transmissible. And he's interested, in, as you said, in transmissibility, and he's helped by the fact that these are forms that we share across languages. That seems a perfect point at which to think about um, our own form of transmission uh, into a different medium, and to think about Benjamin's radio work, of course, which uh, he was uh, very committed to um, in the later part of his life. And we are delighted to welcome Michael Rosen. Michael, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Now, you've already made uh, a radio feature about Benjamin's radio work. And later uh, in this podcast, you'll be reading from the Mississippi flood of 1927. But uh, it's no surprise, given your own uh, passionate concerns and interests, that you have a fascination with Benjamin radio work. Could you give us a sense for readers and listeners who, who don't know, know the work, where the emphasis for Benjamin lies in, in radio and what it can do? Uh, well, let me start with um, the way radio works, if you like, which quite clearly from the way he did his broadcast for children, he is both making a broadcast but also interrogating what radio itself can do. Now, it's rather absurd. Here we are. We sit next to a microphone and there's some people in the room and we're talking to each other, but we know that there is a hidden presence beyond so prior to this technological revolution, this would seem quite absurd that we are talking to any number of people, hundreds, thousands, possibly even millions, none of whom we can see. Now, at the same time, we also have a sense that we're talking to individuals. So it is a collective medium. It's an individual medium. You are an individual sitting at the microphone. You may have two or three other people with you. So there are all kinds of strange, bewildering problems, particularly, uh, I suspect, and we can sort of perhaps interpret it for Benjamin himself, because what he was asked to do was to give broadcasts to children. Now, this is, this is totally familiar to us, you know, broadcasting to children. Of course, that's what we do. That's, you know, I've done it. Uh, it happens every day on television and, and indeed on, on radio. He would have been one of the first to be doing it. Now, the way he did it was to assume it was a dialogic medium. This is before the era of phone-ins, right? So he's 
having a conversation with a child. But of course, there's no child to answer it. He's talking into what I always think of as radio silence. You have no idea what's going on out there. So each one of his broadcasts, there is an interrogative element. You know, the, the, the broadcasts are littered with questions none of which, of course, get answered. And they aren't rhetorical questions in the sense of that we ask rhetorical questions in our speech that we don't expect to be answered. These are questions that you know that he's longing for the child to answer at home. So it's, you know, we know that you can write fiction like that, but this is much more immediate. He knows there is a child at the other end listening to a radio programme and he hopes they'll be answering. So just right from the very first one, he, he talks about Berlin dialect. So he's talking about the speech that the children who are listening use themselves, but would have been in the in the high schools, completely condemned. You, you know, you couldn't bring in this dialect, which in German is schnauzer, which really means your schnoz, your nose, your snout. It's, it's a vulgar word. And so... This this idea is dealing with what, what it is that the children themselves say, and he's saying, you, he begins, today I'd like to speak with you about the Berlin schnauzer. This so-called big snout is the first thing that comes to mind when talking about Berliners, and then he keeps saying, I'll tell you about this, and you'll know about this. And each one of the broadcasts is that. He's engaging it until his very last one, he actually embeds within it mistakes and questions that the children have to solve. So he's gone from... The way the German children, the Berliner children actually speak, he's dignifying the dialect. And then by the time he gets to the end, he's saying, over to you guys. So he's struggling with this very strange form of the, the single person sitting at the microphone with nothing beyond and trying to make it as dialogic as possible. That's tremendous, and thank you very much for, for heightening the uh, aspect of the relationship between the individual and the collective, as you did also that idea of the, the democratic. Of course, we know that radio can also tip over, as it did later in the 30s in Germany, into a propagandistic mode, of course, and a fascistic mode. But In fact, could I just say something on that? Actually, not only was it fascistic, but also, if you read uh, Thiessen, the steel magnate's autobiography, where he said, sorry, pals, I was a Nazi, that one, which is a rather odd book, but he actually provided the Nazi party with cars. And guess what? Microphones and speakers so that not only did, did he, as it were, help the Nazis discover the power of radio, but also of the amplified speech of coming into an, uh, a city square, a town square, setting yourself up with the car, with the microphone and the amplified speaker. And he actually enabled the Nazis to discover that, that if you like, instead of, they weren't just simply street fighters, as they were indeed, but also street broadcasters. And Thiessen, so at the same time, and a bit earlier, in fact, that, that Benjamin is trying to create this dialogic form in radio, the Nazis had this other form of sort of street radio. Sorry to come across. No, you. no, that's well. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating and, and disturbing. And that relationship, of course, the military-industrial complex, as it was later called, uh, in action. Uh, so Benjamin was directly in in uh, opposition to that. Uh, the space that he was creating radio was very different. But could you tell us about the voice that he made? Because because we know that he he broadcast these with his own voice. The vast majority of broadcasts were, if not all of them, were. In, in his own voice. And I don't literally mean his voice, but his, the, the voice that he makes, the space that he makes with his voice, is, as you, of course, as a broadcaster, also make with your voice. What 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 flavour does that have? How does it come across to you? The, the interesting thing is, if, if you imagine a children's encyclopaedia, OK, so these are now almost redundant objects, but I was brought up on them. Now, children's encyclopaedias are a kind of potpourri, a mixture, a bricolage, you know, alphabetically arranged... We know from the Arcades project that uh, Benjamin was fascinated by the idea that you could take bits of stuff, whatever it is, interesting quotes, no more than that, and that you relied on the listener to make the leaps between them. That this idea of the active listener, the person dealing in the gaps between things and creating new meanings. Well, across this body of broadcasts, 29 of them for children, you get a sense that that's what he's trying to engage with. So there's stuff within each broadcast where he, let's say, takes you to to uh, the Borsig Works, this gigantic locomotive works in Berlin. 
which I was lucky enough to revisit. Amazingly, it survived the bombing. It's still there and is now a place that makes uh, turbines for the petrochemical uh, industry. And he is both thrilled and appalled. That's quite often his tone. So another place that he takes us to are the Mietskaserne, that we, translates rather awkwardly as the rental barracks, but we might call them tenement buildings, where on the one hand he is appalled at this industrialization of space where workers are, are squeezed into these tenement buildings um, by, the, by the industrial complex, indeed, as you say. But at the same time, he's, he, he wants to be if you like, thrilled by the collectivity and the possibilities of the city. So just as somebody like Jane Jacobs years later was saying the idea that the city, trust the city, trust it, believe it, people will get together and create new things. He wants to have that uh, ambivalent quality about it and be positive about it. Um, and at the same time, what's extraordinary is, if you like, there's not only this encyclopedic quality that his, his eye falls on children's books, on a department store. Um, it, it also, he is prepared to be political, but not directly talking about political parties. But so, for example, he talks about, in, in his language, gypsies. And he is, you know, he's taking risks here because this is a despised minority. And of course, he's ever and more and more aware that he belongs to a despised minority. By 32, you couldn't be in any doubt about it. So even from his childhood, maybe, where there maybe wasn't that much overt anti-Semitism, by the time he's getting to 31 and 32, you know, it's all around him. And so when he's talking about the gypsies, we might imagine that there's a little bit of uh, surrogate stuff going on here, that we could substitute Jew for gypsy, and, and he's engaging with that. So he's talking directly to children in the midst of what is becoming a maelstrom. Uh, the Berlin itself, in a way, is besieged by Nazism rather than, as it were, producing it because it was a diverse, multicultural, multi-gendered, multi-sexual city in a whole variety of ways, and the Nazis hated it because, you know, Berlin was not its, its jewel by any means. And so there's something incredible, really, at this period that you have this voice. I mean, when you, I mean, I can't compare it. I don't, I don't have the, the, the cultural apparatus to compare it with what else was going on in Germany at the time. But if I compare it with the kinds of, you know, radio fun type stuff, you know, I buy radio fun annuals. It's one of the things I collect, you know, that's, that's what radio was, was having in, in, in Britain and America, where, you know, you didn't address the audience in this kind of serious dialogic way about life as it is being lived, industry as it is being done. It, it just wasn't in the repertoire of British radio. Esther, could we close in conversational terms with you and just thinking finally about this relationship between page and airwave, if you'd like. There's the, the, the moment of writing of the, of the radio pieces, they then enter the airwaves and then now, of course, many decades later are brought back to the page uh, as a collection, which I'm sure, of course, Benjamin never imagined they would be had he lived a normal length of life even. And I wonder what you think about that relationship between between the airwave and the page and this kind of idea of translation that Marina talked about earlier between media in this case as opposed to between forms. But is there is there a, a, a useful dynamic to investigate there or is it a, a level field across the across the media? There's a funny story, short story that we included in the storyteller called um, On the Minute which I think in some ways dramatises this this strange relationship that, that we still exist across written media, mass media, broadcast media, this whole whirl of different forms that don't always sit easily with each other. And uh, On the Minute is a, is, is a story about somebody, Benjamin himself, ostensibly giving his first radio broadcast and really messing it up because he misreads the way the clock is working in the studio and he's he's written out this piece which in some ways you know denies all improvisation because it, here it is sort of solidly fixed on the page and then he misreads the clock and he's run out of time and then he's forced to improvise and then the technological media fails anyway and and I think it's it's playing around with that that sense of the the different demands of these formats the ways in which they crash up against each other in sometimes productive sometimes absurd and disastrous 
ways. Um, and it speaks also to another kind of fluidity or interaction, because we did also include in the collection a short piece called Radio Games, which is one of the instances of Benjamin trying to, to work with this dialogic medium and giving out words on his radio broadcast and then asking his child listeners to compose poems and phrases out of those words and to write them down and to post them into the radio station and then these then appear in the radio times of of the day and this sort of crossing backwards and forwards I suppose between written word, broadcast word, the improvised, the fixed is something that's at the fore of his mind and and, and also, I think, continues to have immense potency today. Can I just say a little point there, linguistically? It's convenient for linguists to talk about speech and written language and say that these are utterly distinct in the procedures and protocols of the two. But, of course, one of the things that radio almost invented by itself was something called radio speech. And linguists don't tend to make pay much attention to it, but any broadcaster, and you're broadcasting yourself, you've written yourself a script, I write myself scripts, and one of the things you have to do is to turn it from prose into radio ease. Here's Benjamin. What is Borsig? Many of you have heard the name, and you probably know that Borsig is a machine works. From your Sunday excursions, many of you know where it's located. When you head out of Berlin on the street towards Oranienburg and Welten, you pass through, and so on. Now, that is radio speak. Somehow or other, so early in the history of radio, he's found a way of keeping his sentences short, intimate, addressed to the listener. And, I mean, in, in that sense, he's a pioneer. And he's, he's actually explored this hinterland between the two forms. I mean, this is someone, after all, you know, he's a PhD, writes in philosophy, writes classic German sentences that, you know, have like kind of 20 clauses, you know, that, that we struggle with. And I'm sure Esther struggles with to turn them into English. And here he is speaking a very intimate way of writing. This thing is big industry and wholesale trade. Today we won't talk about trade these little clip sentences. And it reminds me of the fact that when I sit with somebody who's quite new to radio, because I'm, you know, I'm very long in the tooth in it, quite often I see that there's too many whens and whereafters and sen sort of sentences that listeners find quite hard to hear. Somehow or other, and you tell me how, whether it's through his relationship with his son or whatever, he's found radio language, he's found radio ease. And to me, it sort of leaps off the page, ironically, as a radio script and not as prose. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you, Michael. And of course, that's another example of his prescience, his innovation and his genius. Thank you very much indeed, Esther, for uh, navigating us between page and air. And now, Michael, if you'd like to introduce uh, the reading you're about to give us. Thank you very much. On March 23rd, 1932, uh, Walter Benjamin um, gave a broadcast for children on Radio Berlin. And in German, it was called the Überschwemmung des Mississippi, the Mississippi Flood, which had happened several years before in 1927. And, of course, the, if we're thinking of 1932, this was a time where uh, Benjamin was predicting various cataclysms that were about to happen. Um, and he quoted somebody. He quoted a writer who had written about the floods uh, in Mississippi. And uh, here's the story that uh, he read on, on that uh, occasion on the radio. The water had left us with only a strip of the pitched roof. One of the chimneys had already been ripped away. Around us there was nothing left to see of the destroyed town. Only from the church tower soaring heavenwards undamaged could we hear the ringing voices of the rescued. From far off we could hear the rushing of the water. The sound of collapsing houses had ceased. It was like a shipwreck in the middle of the ocean, thousands of miles from the shore. We're drifting, murmured John, clinging to the roof tiles with all his might. It actually felt as if the roof had transformed itself into a raft, carried along by the current. But when we looked over at the steeple just standing there, unmoving, we saw that it had only been our imagination. We were still at the very same spot amid the roaring swells. Now the real battle began. At first the river followed the street, but now the rubble blocked its way and drove it back. It was a downright assault. 
the current gathered every beam or tree trunk in its way and fired it like a missile against the house. And even then the current wouldn't let it go, sweeping it up again and firing it off anew. The walls were shaking under these unrelenting and steady attacks. Before long we were bombarded in this way by ten or twelve beams. The churning water masses raged and roared and the foam splashed round our feet. From the house beneath us we heard what sounded like a dull moan. We heard its joints creak. Sometimes when a beam would strike with frightful force, we thought it was over and the walls would give in, delivering us to the wild river. Sometimes when we saw a bundle of hay or an empty barrel drift by, we would wave our handkerchiefs excitedly until we realised our mistake and sank back into our silent fear. Hey, look over there, cried John suddenly. A big boat. With outstretched arm, he pointed to a dark spot in the distance. I couldn't see anything, neither could Bill, but he carried on. And it really was a boat. It rode closer and closer until we could finally make it out. It glided slowly forward, seeming to encircle us, but not coming any closer. I can only say that at this point we were like madmen. We flailed our arms about, yelling at the top of our lungs. We hurled insults at the boat, calling it a coward as it drifted by, silent and sinister. Was it really a boat? I still don't know to this day. When we finally saw it disappear, our last hopes went with it. From that point on, we expected the house to cave in at any moment and to swallow us whole. It seemed that the house must already have been completely undermined, save for one especially strong wall, and if that gave way, everything else would go down with it. I trembled at the thought that the roof would no longer carry our weight. The house might have lasted the whole night, but the roof began to give way under the constant barrage of beams. We had fled to the left side of the roof, where the rafters were still more or less intact. But then they too began to sway, and it was plain to see that they wouldn't hold out much longer if all three of us stayed huddled together in the same spot. My brother Bill had, very mechanically, placed his pipe back in his mouth. Grumbling to himself, he curled his moustache and furrowed his brow. The rising danger he saw before him, against which all his courage amounted to nothing, began to make him impatient. He spat a few times into the water with angry disdain. Then, as the timber beneath him continued to give out, he made his decision and climbed from the roof. Bill! Bill! I called. I sensed with horror what he was doing. He turned himself around and said peacefully, Farewell, Louis. You see, it's taking too long. I want to make room for you too. First he threw his pipe and then himself into the flood. Farewell, he said again. I've had enough. He never resurfaced. He was a bad swimmer and he probably didn't even try to save himself. He didn't want to survive our ruin and the death of our loved ones. So we've got to remember there that Benjamin is giving that broadcast to children uh, as late as March 23rd, 1932. Uh, the Nazis are already getting huge votes. Um, it's before they seize final power in January 33. And then in his last part of the broadcast to children, he says something really very prescient. So much for the raging elements of the Mississippi. On some other occasion, we'll return to its banks during times when the river flowed peacefully in its bed, but there was little peace to be found on its shores. For a long time now, I've planned to tell you the story of America's greatest and most dangerous secret society, next to which all bands of whiskey smugglers and criminal gangs are child's play. The Ku Klux Klan. Once again, we'll find ourselves on the banks of the Mississippi, but this time facing the raging elements of human cruelty and violence. The dams that the law has built to contain them have held up no better than the actual ones made from earth and stone. And so, stay tuned for the Ku Klux Klan and Judge Lynch and the other unsavoury characters that have populated the human wilderness of the Mississippi and still populate it today. Thank you so much, Michael. This brings us to the end, I think, uh, of what you will surely agree uh, has been a fascinating exploration of Walter Benjamin's storytelling and radio work. If this doesn't spur you to greater exploration, then I don't know, frankly, what will. You have two collections at your disposal now, Radio Benjamin from Verso Books, of course, and now The Storyteller, also from Verso. We're delighted to thank all our guests today, Esther Leslie, Marina Warner, Michael Rosen, of course, and Flossie Draper. We'll be back at some point in the future. Do stay tuned. 
But don't quite sit by your dial at this point, because there will be, of course, another podcast between Verso Books and the London Review Bookshop later in the year. Um, but the Benjamin uh, celebrations don't stop here. We have an event in the London Review Bookshop, of course, on the 23rd of June, where I'll be in further conversation with Esther Leslie. Benjamin is the bookshop's author of the month for June. And you can, of course, still catch up on Michael's Radio 4 exploration of Benjamin's own radio work uh, in the archive on 4Slot, uh, available, of course, on the BBC iPlayer. Thank you very much indeed to everyone at Verso Books, especially Sarah Sheehan, and, of course, to the entire team of the London Review Bookshop. And thank you for listening. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.